0: So we are going to pick up our study about the Feast of Leviticus, the Feast of the Lord. And the feast that we're going to discuss this evening is Tabernacles. So last week we talked about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We discussed how that in the chronological layout of prophecy refers to the judgment that's going to take place during the Great Tribulation, the Day of Jacob's Trouble and how there's going to be a separation of believers from unbelievers at the end of that time period. We talked about the ceremony of the two goats during the Day of Atonement, and how one goat was used for atonement to be brought before the Lord in the tabernacle, and the other goat was sent into the wilderness and was to serve as a scapegoat. We talked about the translation of scapegoat whether or not it refers to simply a goat sitting into the wilderness or Azazel and what it would mean if it referred to Azazel. So if you want to hear that discussion, you can go back and listen to that lesson from last week. <clears throat> but this week we're going to have a little bit more of a lighthearted take on the festivals because Tabernacles is one of those festivals that's lighthearted. It's mm. it's one of those festivals that is about rejoicing. And it depicts a time when God sets up his kingdom on earth and his tabernacle is once again with mankind. And so let's look at that this evening. Um, If you will, let's look at the text given in scripture, which is Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to silent my phone because that is going to be really annoying. All right, so Leviticus chapter 23. And we are going to look at verse number 33. Starting there, we're going to read through. And then we'll talk about some of the symbolic significance of the Feast of Tabernacles. So in Leviticus 23, verse 33, it says And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The 15th day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles. "...for seven days unto the Lord." And so the seventh month was the month of Tishri, and this feast was to last for seven days. So interesting doubling there of seventh month and seven days. "...on the first day shall be a holy convocation, you shall do no servile work therein. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord." It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. We'll talk about the eighth day next week because mm-hmm. even though it's part of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's sort of set apart in another way. So we'll discuss that then. But it says in verse 37 These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and a drink offering, everything upon his day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings which ye give unto the Lord. Also, in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. <clears throat> and you shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees. Some translations say fruit of goodly trees. Branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. So rejoicing is a big contrast to the fasting, mm. which we talked about last week. And Yom Kippur has a fast on it. It's that one festival that's set apart that way. And you shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days, all that Israelites or Israelites born shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord, your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel, the feast of the Lord. So that's what we have given in scripture. There are some other, other references in the old Testament, but Mm -hmm. that's the main text from Leviticus. So kind of putting this on the calendar. So it makes sense we talked about how the feast of the festivals are divided up into the springtime festivals and the falltime uh, festivals and the springtime festivals included Passover first fruits, uh, before that actually unleavened bread, um, Shavuot, which is also known as Pentecost. Mm -hmm. It's more familiar to us that way. And then in the fall, we have these festivals we've been discussing. So we'll get to the spring festivals eventually, but we're talking about trumpets and the yamim Mm Noraim, the terrible days that would follow the feast of trumpets and then the day of atonement and now we're up to tabernacles so this was to happen at the same time that there was a big fall festival or sorry a big fall harvest is what i meant to say and you had three harvests that would happen in a year and this is something that I've, i've just sort of scratched the surface on it's a whole thing that's been discussed by theologians how these harvests depict the resurrection. Hmm. And depending on who you ask, they may have a slightly different take on it. But the three harvests are simply spring, summer, and fall. Hmm. And the spring uh, spring harvest would happen around Passover, first fruits, and then you would have uh, the summer harvest following Pentecost, and then you would have the fall harvest, which would take place, at tabernacles or Sukkot as it's often called so those are the three and so again depending on who you ask they might they might tell you that the harvest represents the resurrection in this way so you have Passover um, which takes place before the feast of first fruits and so Jesus he resurrected from the dead Sunday first fruits so it would have been on the same day and the priest would present a wave offering to the Lord and so when Jesus comes up from the grave he sort of Wave before the Lord, accepted by the Lord, his sacrifice is accepted. God the Father clearly indicates that since his son is not left to be corrupted in the grave, physically speaking, that he has been uh, accepted as our atonement. And so the springtime harvest would relate to Christ. And at that same time that Christ was resurrected, it says in Matthew 27 that others came out of their graves. And while many people think that's a natural resurrection, I'm not so sure. It's not explicitly indicated whether or not it's a natural bodied resurrection right. or whether they receive their glorified bodies or not. If it is part of this first fruits concept to me, it would seem that they would be in the glorified bodies because Jesus is the first fruits of the glorified resurrection that we will participate in. And so if those people that came out of their graves were resurrected as a type or sorry, a fulfillment of the type of first fruits, right? Then I would assume that they did receive their glorified bodies. So who received them? Like who was it? Um, we, we don't know. We simply don't know who received their glorified bodies or who period was resurrected. And the Bible doesn't give us that information. So I guess we don't need to speculate on it, but the springtime festival has to do with first fruits and Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then you have the summer harvest, which takes place uh, after um, Pentecost. And so some people think that that pertains to the church. And so the next phase in the resurrection will be when Christ comes back for his church of the rapture. So you have the springtime festival. That's Christ, the first fruits. Then you have the summer harvest and that is us, the church being raptured and resurrected. And then you have that last harvest The fall harvest, which is going to happen even after the rapture, after the church age comes to a close. So that would be tribulation saints, and I suppose that would also include uh, saints who lived during the millennium. The Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The eternal kingdom of God, therefore, um, is only something one can experience if they have a glorified body. So those millennial saints, I assume, are going to have to have glorified bodies to enter into that new heaven and new earth. Mm-hmm. So while the Bible doesn't explicitly mention their resurrection, I think we can assume it. So maybe that would also fall into the category of the fall harvest. But again, that that's that's something that's debated on. I think that it makes sense, but we can't really say for sure one way or another. But let's talk a little bit more About tabernacles. So let's discuss some historical significance for tabernacles. So first, Mm. tabernacles commemorates them being in the wilderness, living in tents. But not just living in tents. I think it also has to do with they lived in tents and God lived in a tent. So they they were all living in tents. And God tabernacled among them. So tabernacles for the Jews looks to the return of the glory, that Shekinah glory that left the temple as described in Ezekiel 10. And would return. And God would once more tabernacle among his people. The temple would be rebuilt, right. which was destroyed long ago. And he would fill that. And so this does picture the millennium when Jesus comes back. The temple is going to be rebuilt. He fills the glory. Just as in Ezekiel it describes the glory of the Lord leaving. It describes the glory of the Lord coming back. And that's clearly referring to Jesus. Uh, in fact, it says that whenever the glory of the Lord left the temple, uh, it says that he left going to the east, through the east gate, and to the east. And apparently, while the Mount of Olives is not mentioned explicitly in the text, he went up the Mount of Olives, and from there he ascended to heaven. And then in Zechariah, it mentions at the end of that book that Christ is going to set foot on the Mount of Olives. When he comes back, it's going to split in two, Mm -hmm. creating a valley there. And then it says, soon after he is going to enter into Jerusalem, He's going to go into the temple, and he's going to enter the temple through the east gate. And he's going to set up his throne there in the Holy of Holies. So Jesus is the glory of the Lord who returns. So tabernacles definitely has to do with that. And whenever the temple was first built, whenever Solomon's temple was dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8, it indicates that this was during tabernacles. So there was a seven-day period of dedication that happened. And it says that the Lord came down. This fire, pillar of fire, just like he went with them in the wilderness. He came down in fire and he filled the temple in his glory. And so after that period of dedication, lasting seven days, there was another seven days. And when you compare scripture with scripture, that seven day period, that second seven, referred to the seven days of tabernacles. And Hmm. so it says on the eighth day, Solomon dismissed them and they went home. He made them go home. And it appears that the people didn't want to go home. They would have stayed there forever because mm-hmm. the Lord had just entered the temple. They really didn't have any desire to leave. Right. And it's kind of interesting that whenever God sets up his tabernacle on earth, you know, we won't have to leave. We'll be mm-hmm. with there with him forever. And that's something we'll talk more about next week when we discuss that eighth day. That eighth day has to do with not being sent away, but... What gets set up during tabernacles, God making his dwelling place among men, that eighth day has to do with the new heaven and the new earth. God's tabernacle among men becomes permanent. So he comes to dwell among us, no more to leave. And there's something else about that too. When we see the millennium and we consider Christ dwelling in the temple at that time, we have Christ thrown on earth. Christ is the son of God. He is fully God and fully man. But in another sense, you know, you have the Father, right? He's in heaven. He's got his throne up there. And so God's tabernacle is on earth and it's in heaven. You have the Father who's in mm-hmm. heaven, mm-hmm. and you got the Son who, in this glory, is present in the temple, the glory cloud, the Shekinah. And, you know, I don't know for sure exactly how it's going to be. I wonder if. Christ is going to be visible to everybody. I think we may have talked about this before. Will he be visible to everybody? I don't know that he will because it mentions, at least among those who are in their natural bodies in Ezekiel, it talks about uh, the prince uh, who's clearly a descendant of David. Uh, Some people think the prince is David resurrected. I doubt it. It mentions him having sons. And so I think that means that he is a natural-bodied individual. He's going to get married and have children. But I think he's probably a descendant of David for sure. Um, I think the text makes that much clear, but he's able to go so far into the temple and sit before the Lord and eat before the Lord. But um, there's still this idea that, you know, the ordinary person can't just walk right into the temple and see Jesus sitting on the throne. So, so that we, sorry what, yeah go so ahead what you're saying
1: is so God the Father's won't be on earth until.
0: Yeah, well, obviously, After, obviously, in in, in a sense, God the Father is everywhere, no, right? I, you know, I, I you know, know what you're saying. but as far as His throne, no, I don't think that God the Father is on Earth during the millennium. Um, just as in the Old Testament, whenever the glory filled the temple, that was the Son, the second member of the Trinity, and we know that because it says that the the angel of the Lord.
1: Ah, was the one
0: who went before the people and God actually indicated that. He says, I I have, I'm going to send before you, uh, uh, my messenger, my angel in whom is my name, which is a pretty unique way of expressing this person has my very nature. And this is without a doubt, Mm -hmm. Jesus, the son of God in the old Testament. And he's the one that's in the cloud. Mm -hmm. He's the one that's going before the people. And reasonably, he's also the same one who is, in the temple because Absolutely. the same glory cloud that was in the yeah. tabernacle is in the temple. Yeah. Right. So, uh, I think that we can be pretty confident that during the millennium it's Christ that's on the throne. Um, but what's really interesting is after the millennium, it mentions the tabernacle of God is with men and it describes, you know, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Right. right. And so it appears that the city that's in heaven today and that the God dwells on the top of, you know, the Mount of God. Um, that's where the Father's throne is. And that city is going to come down to earth right. after it's renovated. I think that probably what you're going to have is that it gets burned up. Mm-hmm. And then after it's right. remade, obviously, that's when the city comes down. And so we have, at that point, it says the throne of God and the Lamb. And so I think that when you're piecing things together... You have the son who is reigning on behalf of the father on earth. He's he's that messenger. He's that uh, the word of the father. Right. And then at the end of the millennium, you have the father's throne on earth, and you have the son on the right hand of the father. So on during the millennium, it's the son's throne, but after the millennium's over, it's God the Father with the Son at his right hand. And that's how he was from all eternity. He sat at the right hand of the Father. And so whenever he came down in the incarnation, he's, in essence, he's leaving the Father's right hand. He's coming down to earth. He's accomplishing a mission that the Father sent him to. And he goes back to the right hand of the Father. And then he comes back down during the millennium. But the Father's still in heaven. So the father's up there and heaven's where he comes from. So Jesus is on earth. His glory is manifested. You know, he is reigning over the nations, but it isn't until after the millennium that heaven is no longer somewhere out there. You know, the city of God is no longer up. The city of God is now on earth. And what's interesting is during the festival of tabernacles, there's this tradition that whenever they, whenever they made their sukkah, okay, their sukkah, their tent, they would make it to where you could see at least three stars through the hole in the sukkah. So you're supposed to be able to see through the heavens. And I tried looking up different sources. Uh, Some sources mentioned that the moon needed to be seen too. But you would look through the hole and you were supposed to be able to at least see something of the heavens. And I wondered why did they do that? I racked my brain thinking about it. And again, this is speculation, but this is what I think. Okay, so it's no more than that. Because I'm not even sure that the biblical text mentions that they should be able to see the stars. I'm pretty sure that's a later tradition that came later. Maybe it goes back to Moses. Who knows? But I can't help but wonder if they're looking up, if they're meant to look up, because the heavenly city hasn't come down yet. Yeah, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah.
0: And even though Christ is going to be on earth and he's going to be reigning, it's like, we're not quite there yet. We're in an in-between stage, right? Mm -hmm. It's called the millennium. It's only a thousand years. It's not forever. So why would you speak of the thousand years as a thousand years and not just eternity? Right? Why mark it off? It's because it's a transitionary period. So is God on earth? Absolutely. Is the Lord there reigning on the earth? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not quite all the way there yet. Right? I mean, you don't have God the Father on the earth yet. You don't have the throne of God with Christ at the right hand on earth yet.
1: Mm. See, so. I always thought that the, the Shekinah glory, going back to that, mm-hmm. was the Holy Spirit. I mean, it could be you know splitting hairs, but in my mind, that's it was like, okay, well, that's the Shekinah glory, so there's that. So that's probably the Holy Spirit and not Jesus per se. And I I think that sometimes we fail to, you know, elevate the Holy Spirit to where the Holy Spirit should be. Yeah, and I I think
0: that, you know, when you're talking about the glory cloud, it's obviously a pillar of fire. The Holy Spirit is constantly described in terms of fire in the New Testament, Pentecost fire. So it could be that the fire is the Holy Spirit, but it speaks of the angel within the fire. And we never see the angel depict, or sorry, we never see... The Holy Spirit depicted as a human, right? With like a, a human uh, appearance. Yeah. What's that? Bring it. That's our Weather radio. Oh, Okay. Um, but we never we never see that happening. We see the Holy Spirit appearing as a dove. And so this doesn't mean that the Holy oh, Spirit is impersonal. Yeah. It just means that the one who makes God personally known, the one, the image of God is the son. Right. Okay. And he he's the word, and so the Holy Spirit generally has an invisible ministry. Yeah. And that, that I mean that's just the way he's depicted in the New Testament. He is a he, it's not yet. Right. Holy yeah, Spirit's yeah, yeah. a he. He's a person. But um I think one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit isn't quite talked about as much is because um the Holy Spirit is depicted in those terms.
1: Yeah.
0: He's a person. But he's depicted as wind. He's depicted as fire. He's depicted at most as a dove. But we don't see the Holy Spirit depicted as a human. And as humans, when we think of a person. We generally yes. think in, you know. But of course, that's not a right either. Because right, the because Father, he's not depicted in human appearance. Right. Um, so that's
1: three persons in one. Yeah.
0: So, you know, again, like you said, splitting hairs, It's it's really hard to do. Uh, sometimes to make sense of it. We do see in the Old Testament, of course, the Holy Spirit constantly referred to. He's there. um, And the Holy Spirit's one with the Son. The Son's one with the Father. Anyways, we're talking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In general, and and I've, again, I've studied this a lot, and I still don't have a full understanding of it. No theologian does. No human being does. But in general, what we see is the Father, he's on his throne in heaven. <clears throat> and he's the one who sends. Yep. He sends the Son. The Son is the one who makes known God. Um, not just in terms of knowledge, but also he makes God the Father known visibly. So we see somebody personally. He interacts with us personally. Right. In the Old Testament, he takes on a human form, which is easy for us to understand. In the New Testament, he takes on humanity literally. And then we have the Holy Spirit who empowers, he guides, he He works behind the scenes. He guides us into all truth. He's a counsel. He's just like the Son, but He can't be seen. And so while the Holy Spirit indwells us now and He's with us, it's in effect the Son being with us Mm -hmm. because the Son and the Holy Spirit are one, just like the Father and the Son are one. But Jesus is, visibly speaking, in heaven right now. And the one who's making Him known is the Holy Spirit. And so we see this, it's like a cascade effect. you know. And And the Father, He sends the Son, but then... Uh, he says, when I go back up to heaven, the Son says that, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So it's like the Father sends the Son. The Son goes back. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Son testifies of the Father. The Holy Spirit testifies of the Son. The Son takes what's given to Him from the Father. The Holy Spirit takes what's given from the Son. It's like that diagram. Yeah, right, it's, right, it's, right. Like, it's, it's confusing, yes. right? I mean, there are clear-cut distinctions, Yes, but... You can't really find the beginning or the end of them, no. and and it's it's like a Celtic knot. You know, right. you see distinct lines, you can follow the pattern, but again, you're never able to find a beginning or an end, That's because right. they're eternal, they're timeless. Yeah. But uh, talking about uh, tabernacles again, another interesting aspect is tabernacles is just showing that it's a transitionary time. They traveled in tents, knowing that that was not going to be how it was forever. They traveled mm-hmm. in tents as they were on their way to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, they would build their dwellings, you know? And so this time period during the millennium, it is a transitionary time period. It's like we're settling down, but we're, we're, we're settling down only for the thousand years, because at the end of the thousand years, everything's going to be changed. I mean, the earth is going to be burned up. God's going to make a new one. And so just as the Israelites were on their way to something, God was with them. Yeah but they were on their way to something. God will be us. The sun will be us, but we will be on our way to the new heaven and new earth. So the tabernacles doesn't represent eternity. The tabernacles just represents that time where the kingdom is set up and God lays the foundation for what he's going to build upon later. Um, but let's talk about the four species. The four species are four different types of plants uh, or branches that are commanded here to be taken and yeah. to be used for the making of these booths or these, these Sukkot, uh, Tabernacles. But in Leviticus 23, 40 it says boughs of goodly trees, and again, sometimes people translate boughs there as fruit of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And so, anyways, these were supposed to all be tied together to make the booths. But in addition to that, there is this really ancient and consistent tradition that's kept even today that they would not only make their booths of these materials, but they would also wave them. So they would like put these together and they would make wands out of these three different types of branches. And then they would have fruit in the other hand, a specific fruit called the etrog. Right. And it's a citron fruit. And so they'd have that in their left hand and then in their right hand, they'd have this wand. Okay. And so all throughout the Festival of Tabernacles, the, the fruit that they're holding is upside down. Okay. And... They have in their other hand what's called the lulav. Mm. I may be pronouncing that wrong, but that's what it looks like, lulav, mm-hmm. lulav. And they're holding that in their other hand, and they're waving that. Well, after the ceremony, they end up turning the etrog upside down, or rather right side up. Mm-hmm. And they bring it together, and they hold it together with the lulav. And that's, in essence, a picture of, of God bringing someone something together, right? So you wonder what's the imagery of this. It's mm. not found in the Bible like this mm. particular tradition. It came later. Um, but it is interesting. So we'll, we'll talk about what that might mean. But before we get to that, let's look at at least the biblical imagery. The biblical imagery is the gathering of these things simply to make a booth. Right. Uh, it could mean that there's this this gathering of the nations it's interesting that they would according to uh jewish tradition again i couldn't find a reference in the bible to this there might be one that i don't know about Mm. but uh they would offer 70 burnt offerings for the cleansing of the gentile nations and so they would call that the festival of nations that's another title for So it does pertain to the nations. And we know that during the millennium, God's going to bring the nations to Jerusalem. And there's going to be this unity between Jew and Gentile that currently doesn't exist. Right now, we're in the time of the Gentiles. Uh, The Jews have been uh, afflicted. They've been persecuted. Mm. But he's going to restore them to their position of privilege. And the Gentiles, they're not going to be persecuted. It's not going to be a time of affliction for them. But they're not going to be in that firstborn position like the Israelites. They're going to have particular blessing. Right. the Israelites will and the Gentiles are going to learn about God through the Israelites so they're going to fulfill God's purpose for them which is to be a servant and to be a light to the nations um, so that's one gathering that we could envision another gathering obviously would be the harvest and so like we said that could reference resurrection um, because the millennium is going to be kick-started with resurrection we know that the tribulation martyrs will be resurrected so that sort of harvest uh, there's the gathering together of the nations. But another thing that I considered as I was thinking about that tradition of the fruit the etrog and the lulav is there's three branches woven together to make up that staff, that little wand that they have. Right. Staff, wand, whatever you want to call it. And I thought, well, in history, biblically speaking, there are three main categories. There are, after the division of north from south, you had the two, the the two divisions of God's people. You had the northern, and that was Israel. Then you had mm-hmm. the southern, and that was Judah. Okay. And it mentions in the Bible that the northern and the southern, represented by two sticks, are going to be bound together. So there's this prophecy that they're right. going to be bound together into one stick. Well, then right. you have over here the Gentiles. What about them? Well, it's interesting that the Lulav is three. So as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but wonder, perhaps this is, if it's an authentic tradition, could it be representative of northern kingdom, southern kingdom? So Israel's united, and then Israel's united with the nations because we all have a common ancestor in Adam, and we all have a common savior in Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, then what about the fruit? It's interesting that the fruit, the etrog, is supposed to represent the heart, and it's perhaps chosen because it resembles a little bit what a heart looks like and Mm. it's turned upside down through the ceremony. And then at the end it's, it's turned right side up and then it's brought together. So you can't help but wonder if that heart resembles, um, or sorry, represents get my word right. The heart of man. Mm. And so what we have in the millennium is we have the Jews and the Gentiles. They're united together. But the heart of man is not fully made right with God yet because we know there will be rebellion all throughout the millennium. And when I say all throughout the millennium, it may not be on a large scale. The Bible doesn't say there's going to be war. I mean, there will be complete peace, right? It's going to be a golden age. But there still will be rebels. And then at the end, there's going to be that great rebellion called the Gog and Magog rebellion. Or we might refer to it as Gog and Magog 2 or Revisited, you know. But... The idea is the heart of man is not turned right side up and fully uh, restored and reconciled to God until after the great white throne judgment mm. when unbelievers are removed into the mm, lake of fire mm. and the new heaven and the new earth is inhabited by, by mankind as God intended mankind to be. Um, on earth, there will still be seeds of rebellion throughout the millennium. It won't be until after that that there will be no more rebellion. And so I can't but wonder if throughout the Feast of Tabernacles, the having that fruit turned upside down and separated from those three branches Mm -hmm. that are woven together, if that represents like during that time period represented during the millennium, you're going to have this unity among the nations and the Jews, but mankind's not quite right with God yet. We're close. We have unity. We didn't have that before. We're still not quite there yet. But by the end of tabernacles, by the end of the millennium, everything will be as it should be. So again, that's just me. I've not heard anybody say that. I'm always nervous when I share something that I I think of and I've never seen anybody else mention because you know again, as I've heard it said by many people before, if someone's never thought of it that's before, right then you're probably... Chances are you're wrong. Chances are you're wrong. So, you know, maybe there's someone out there the that said it,
1: but I haven't read it yet, you know? Right, but on the other hand, I mean, we are in in the time of that things are being
0: revealed. That's true, that's true. But, yeah. you know, when it comes to this stuff, it is speculation because we're dealing with, in this case, a tradition that comes right. later, right? If it is authentic, and that's a big if, Sure. it's still not interpreted for us like we, we right. don't have information in god's word to tell us what it means so i think it's curious sure that's all i'm saying yep okay so those are the four species that's what it's called those those four things okay we just talked about it in the booths we talked about what those symbolize we talked about the millennium now, the last thing i want to talk about as far as tabernacles is christ's birthday so when jesus came down to earth the first time he tabernacled in our midst and the tent that he tabernacled in was the tent of his body. Right. So when he tabernacles in the millennium, his tent will be the temple, and he'll be in that. But when he first came, he tabernacled among us in his body. And in fact, in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Greek verb skenao means to tabernacle, to mm. pitch his tent among us. So when it says he, he dwelt among us in the King right. James, that's right. not wrong. But it comes from the idea of a tent. When we think of dwell, we don't necessarily think of a tent, yeah, right? We think but yeah, that word has that connotation. So he tabernacled among us. Now that doesn't prove that when Jesus came and he was born, that he was born on tabernacles. However, there right. is some evidence for it, and this is one of those things that I know I I didn't come up with. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've definitely heard many people mention this, so I'm gonna share with you a little bit of the evidence. Okay, so. Based on the timing of John the Baptist's birth. Right. And we can guess that based on when Zechariah went into the temple to offer at the altar of incense. Right. And how he went back to where he lived. And we can assume that Elizabeth conceived relatively sh- shortly after that. Sure. Based on that assumption and based on the knowledge that um, Mary was... I I think again. I'm so sorry if I'm wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure that when Mary visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth was six months pregnant. Right. Okay. So based on those details, I think History. it's six months pregnant. History. Elizabeth being yeah, yeah. that far along. And again, all of this is in Luke chapter one. Yep. Okay. Um, yes, Luke chapter one, uh, verse thirty six. It right. mentions that it was the that uh, when the angel appeared to Gabriel. Right. Okay, so I need you to correct that a little bit. Angel Gabriel. Yes, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her she would conceive, it was the sixth month. Now, I doubt that there was a long time period following that conversation in Mary conceiving. Okay, Right. You might assume that, but I doubt it. I I reasonably assume that she probably conceived soon after, if not immediately after, The angel Gabriel appearing to her. Okay,
1: this is going to happen, and it happens.
0: So, assuming all of that, okay. So, there's a few assumptions. They're reasonable assumptions. Yeah. Then we can determine, beyond reasonable doubt, that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary during the season of Hanukkah. So, this would have been December, late December. And it's interesting that Ken Johnson, in his book here, mentions that the phrase "Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord" is a part of the prayers. Um, that are customarily said during Hanukkah season by women, obviously. And so is there a connection there? If there is, it could be that Mary was praying a prayer that was customarily prayed during Hanukkah season. So that would mean, you know, a lot of people nowadays that are against Christmas because of the pagan connotation or the pagan connection. Well, if Jesus was conceived Late December, yes, that was when the incarnation took place. We know yes. according to scripture, life begins at conception. So whenever Christians in the West, okay, there are different Christian denominations that do things differently, but when Christians in general celebrate the incarnation at Christmas time, well, they're not wrong. Right. I mean, if Jesus was conceived around that time of year, right. Well, then, great. That's mm-hmm. a good time. You know, it's, I mean, it's not commanded obviously for us to do it, but yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense. There
1: is some biblical support for that um isn't there isn't there a a jewish tradition that what is it that they consider that the birth is at the time of 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 creation that's not the word i'm looking for when when a baby is you know when the egg and the sperm met yeah fertilization they at fertilization they consider that that is the birthday like yeah, because well, that I,
0: is I, I time, don't, right? you know, yeah, I don't know exactly uh, what their way of reckoning that was. But I, I do know that, um, I do know that according to the law, Mosaic law, a child was considered fully alive. Yes. Before they were born. Yes. And so if a child... You know, there's that passage in Exodus, I think it's Exodus 21, where there are two guys striving and they hit a woman who's pregnant and and the baby is is stillborn, then the man responsible would be put to death. So that law indicates that the child is reckoned as alive. Yes. Okay. Because if the child wasn't alive, then the penalty wouldn't fit what had happened because it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in that context. Mm -hmm. So... We know for sure that they were considered alive before they took their first breath mm-hmm. while they were in the womb. So, you know, you, you don't know, right? A man and woman comes together. You don't know if the conception has taken place. Conception is
1: the what I was looking for,
0: yes. However, if later on you found out that you were pregnant and you were able to say, oh, this is probably when it happened. This is when it happened. Right. Then I, I reckon that, yeah, you would say that's when the life began. Right. Because that is mm-hmm. when the life began. But uh, again, following these details in Luke is sparse information. Jesus would have been conceived in the month of Kislev, which is December, our equivalent of December. And uh, there's some corroborating evidence for this, like the decree, the Roman decree for a census, it would have been unlikely to have happened in um, December around Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is. People most likely in the fall would have harvested their crops, and then taxes could have been paid. Right. So, if you were wanting to have a census so you could tax the people, then it'd be not really a logical thing to have it in Christmas time. Right? It'd be harder for people to travel. Okay, in winter time. Yeah. And so, based on that, some people suggest that fall would have been when they would have expected people to to go to the town of their origin. Right. And that's when they would have paid their taxes. Well, when would Jesus have been born based on a conception in December? He would have been born in the fall. He would have been born in late September. So, um, bringing all this together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm going to read you this quote from his book, because I think he summarizes the evidence really well, but he says, when the angels appeared with glory, lighting up the night sky, they announced glad tidings of great joy for all people. Sukkot tabernacles, Is called the season of our joy and the festival of lights. Sukkot is also the festival Mm -hmm. of the nations or for all people. They said the sign would be the Messiah would be lying in a sukkah or manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes are normal for a baby. So why was this a sign? The old swaddling clothes or undergarments of the priest were used as wicks for the 16 great lights used during the Festival of Lights, which was going on in the temple at that very moment. Huh. This showed that the light of the world was just born and that he was a Melchizedekian priest dressed in priestly garb. Angels lit up the sky on this Festival of Lights to announce the birth of the light of the world. And it is interesting about the Festival of Lights that they had a candelabra that they would put in the yes. temple. And it was a very large candelabra, very bright. And I've also read that... Uh, Maidens would do a torch dance, a, a mm-hmm. fire dance. So, you know, festival of light mm-hmm. is definitely a good way to describe tabernacles. And so, based on that, that Jesus is said to tabernacle among mankind, um, it all seems to come together. Yeah. It's not conclusive, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, if that is the case, then Jesus would have been conceived in December and he would have been born in late September. Hmm. Uh, that also would make sense more of the shepherds being out in the field tending the flocks. Um, it, I know that I've hmm. read some people say that's not a conclusive proof against it. I'm not saying that it is. But probably they're not going to be out in the field at nighttime Right. if it's really, really cold outside If its wintertime. They would have found some means to shelter themselves. When would hope? One would hope, but that's just one particular detail in the grander scheme of things. So there's a lot more information. I think the most compelling part of it is the fact that when you line things up, Mary appears to conceive in December, and that would have been Hanukkah for them. And yes. it says that she's praying Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. And that sounds like Hanukkah prayers. And so it kind of falls together. So um, I've heard several people uh, make this argument. But it really all hinges on one thing, I suppose. And that is, when did Zachariah going to the temple to offer at the altar of incense? Hmm. There are a couple different ways you can look at it. Um, some people think that they would go into... The temple and they would serve these different orders a priest they would go into the temple and it would be once a year for two weeks Mm -hmm. and then some people think that they broke that up to where Mm -hmm. they would serve two weeks but they weren't back to back so the the assumption if I remember this correctly the assumption that this argument hinges on is that when he goes into the altar of incense that it's at a particular time of year because his order the order of Abaya, right would have been at the temple During these two weeks and these two weeks would have been back to back. Hmm. And so if they're not back to back, the question is, well, was it this time or was it that time? time, Right. right, And then and then you would have two completely different theories as to when Jesus will be born. Right. Uh, You would have to say you got a 50 50 shot of getting it right, you know. So anyways, that's what it all hinges on. But it is it is fascinating to think about. And it is also fascinating that in Zechariah it mentions at the very end of the book that during the millennium, all nations, that includes us, all nations will go up to the temple right. and we will keep the festival of tabernacles. Yeah. And so what if it was Jesus's birthday? You know, what if that was what it was? That's interesting. If tabernacles is Jesus's birthday, then every year we're going up there and we're celebrating the birthday of the Lord. I just think that that's kind of neat. Um Either way, we're definitely going to be going up and celebrating it regardless of whether is. or not it's the birthday of the Lord. Right. But it would fit, especially since Jesus did tabernacle among us. And at his birth, he was in a manger, which the word used um, is also used in the Old Testament right. to refer to a tabernacle or sukkah. He mentions that here. Um Ken Johnson in his book says Jesus was born in an animal stable. In Genesis thirty three seventeen, we see Jacob built a stable for his animals. This same word used in that passage is the word used for a sukkah or a booth used during the Festival of Tabernacles. And so um, he argues that the manger that Jesus was in was a sukkah, and that would have been constructed for the purpose of the Festival of Tabernacles. So that'd be interesting. It would be interesting. Again, there's a lot of there's there's a, there's a lot of ifs, yeah, but. Yeah, yeah. There's
1: always, there's also that whole thing about him, him being born in the, um, the, what is it from, uh, oh man, I just lost it. That's being, okay. I lose it all the time. Yeah. I know, <laughs> but in, when he was born in, in the thing where they, where they keep the, the, the special sheep that are, uh, destined for, um, sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and that is the, um,
0: you mentioned that before. You and Christy yeah, mentioned that. And I remember really talking about that with y'all a while back.
1: Stuff. And it talks and it's from, um, man, I mean, it's going to be listening to this after. Black's going to be yelling, yelling at me to say, it's this. Is, is that a reference a to Micah? what
0: they would, they'd, they'd wrap the, the lambs in? The swaddling clothes? Yeah, is That's what, what you're talking about? Yeah,
1: clothes and the fact that all that. Yeah. So is it, is it, I was going to, If it's Micah or is it Malachi.
0: Micah is what mentions Migdal Migdal Eder, yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's not where that's not where he would have been born. That was outside of Bethlehem though. Correct. And that's where the shepherds were. So they were outside Bethlehem and Eder, where they were watching the flocks that would have been dedicated to sacrifice in the temple and that's when the angels appeared to him in the field and and told him and that's but the Migdalator
1: was the tower, right? Yeah, it was the a tower, tower yeah. of the flock. It was out It was out in the field. Right? That was out, outside of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so therefore, if he if there was no place to stay, they could say, but you can go stay here at the tower. That's possible. And that possible. would be a manger as well.
0: That's possible. It, it mentions in Micah that his birth would be proclaimed for Migdalater. So the way I've read it is that that was fulfilled when the angels appeared at Migdalator right. and they proclaimed that Christ is born and we will show you where he's laying. So he's sure. already laid down somewhere. Yeah, he's yeah. already been born. They've already got a place for him at that point. Hmm. And so they traveled from there to to that location, right? And talking about that, the birth of Christ, it, it mentions, and again, I, I wish I would have had this reference. It's not something I've prepared to talk about, but yeah. in the Old Testament, there is this, This interesting story about how David grants some property to a fella in 2 Samuel. I don't remember the guy's name. And later on in the book of Jeremiah, it mentions that this person's home that was granted them, that property that they were given from David, was turned into an inn. And so what I've read, what one theory is, is that David may have granted property that he had in Bethlehem to this person. And this person later turned it into an inn. And so the inn that Jesus, there was no room found for him to be in. Right. That inn was actually family property at one point. It would have actually been literally a house of David. Right. Which would heighten the irony, of course, of the whole situation that um, there was no room for him and a house that in ancient times belonged to his to,
1: ancestor, David's family. Right. So yeah, again, really.
0: that's that's another, um, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just a, it's a fan theory. <laughs> sure. If you're a fan of the Bible, you like to discover little nuggets like that. So it would, it would certainly make the story even more ironic, but, um,
1: yeah, the 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 other thing about the mid-later thing is the fact that, you know, the 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 angels come to the shepherds out in the field, right, and they say, the Messiah has been born. Um, and where should they go to? You know, the the Lamb of God has been born. Mm-hmm. Where where would they go to? Well, the Lamb has been born at the mid-later the Tower of the Flock. So that's immediately where they go to. And it's interesting, and that that's not exactly how it goes. But if I remember correctly, that was a big part of it. Hmm. Um, well, let me just look at the verse. Yeah, we because... should we should actually maybe do a study on that sometime because it's it is quite interesting, and we can pull it apart and say no, this can't be. But well, I mean, I am
0: just I don't know. Don't, I guess it's it's the where theory, where did right. they so, yeah, yeah. the gospel was proclaimed. Where's that reference? It's is it in? micah 5 yeah, is that micah where it five is is yeah. so micah 5 do you yes. have it already
1: um yeah I did just give me a second because I moved off well I have my phone give me a second
0: oh. uh, t- where's the tower of the flock reference
1: so it's micah 5 and it's like uh, but you are Bethlehem pretend, are you yeah that's that's, that's talking about
0: where he was born um where's the reference to the tower I can look it up on Katie's phone real quick. By the way, if somebody does happen to be listening to this, we are very laid back. (laughs) You can tell that, right? I mean, we love studying God's word and we hope this is a blessing to somebody. But we're not like regular podcasts. You know, if you hear a baby screaming in the background, that's probably one of my kids. And if you hear children arguing, it could be any one of our kids. But, you know, we keep it real. Yeah, my kids fine all the time. It's awesome. Not. Right. Migdal Eder. Okay,
1: it's Micah four eight. Yeah, yeah, it's like okay. That's so this. And
0: O thou, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, of the kingdom shall come to the daughter, of Jerusalem. So, Migdal Eder is going to be involved <laughs> right. in the uh, the coming of the Messiah, right? Um, it doesn't give, I suppose, a specific layout or a timeline yeah. of, all right, well, did they appear
1: there at is... Migdal
0: Eder? Did the angels appear there and then say, okay, go to Bethlehem? Or was there... Migdal Eder considered part of Bethlehem? Was it in the vicinity enough? Because the prophecy does say Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Right. So, was At, I in that the vicinity? it was right there it was close i just yeah, don't yeah. know i wonder how far away it was i mean was it a mile away i mean
1: right it's probably an easy fact check it's quite interesting too so go and, and study. sorry i need to get to chapter
0: 2 okay so he says the angel speaking in luke 2:11 says for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior. So in the city of David, that seems to me be referring to the city proper, but let's keep reading. And this shall be a sign to you You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then it says the angels appeared to him (laughs) and that's, and that's it. And then it goes on and it says in verse 15, they say, let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing, which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. It's so. What's the
1: Greek say? What's the Greek? Right? <laughs> Don't put me on the spot, the Scott. End, right? What does the Greek well, say? Well, I mean, you can go to, what is this, Bible, whatever uh, uh, I mean, whatever it is. what do you mean?
0: What what particular well, Greek you, word? Well, you said
1: about it, um, being born in Bethlehem.
0: It says being born in the city of in Bethlehem. The city,
1: in the city of David. But then that always makes me say, well, isn't the city of David right Jerusalem, let's let's just see story. how far
0: Migdal Eder is from it. Okay, yeah, Migdal. Either. How far is Migdal Eder from Bethlehem? Okay, it is located about. Okay, so it's on. It was a tower on the road to Bethlehem, and it's about two thousand paces outside bethlehem apparently two thousand which two thousand paces that's what it says right here so
1: i don't know how that how far that means
0: it's outside the wall there you go but that's all apparently yeah it's, it's outside the wall but it's close it's really close
1: yeah interesting
0: it says Migdal Eder in ancient times was a military tower erected to view into the valley on the edge of Bethlehem to protect the city. So... hmm,
1: It's interesting.
0: And this theory says that he... Yeah, this thing, particular blog, believes that he was born in a manger or a stall where the animals were kept. Um and Migdal Eder. That's what this particular... But... In, yeah, it's just outside of Bethlehem, so...
1: It's a possibility. Yeah. I mean... Should, maybe.
0: I guess, okay, so my... I guess it would be... I envision when I read it, this is just me, when, when I read it, it seems like if they are keeping the animals mm-hmm. they are probably grazing them nearby the tower. Maybe I would assume they're probably really close within sight of the tower. The field's right there. Right. And the angels appear to him and say, Alright, the Messiah is born and he's in the city of Bethlehem. They would have probably looked over their shoulder at the city and said, Alright. Okay, where? Good question. Perhaps That's my point. Perhaps maybe they. Do you know what I'm saying? They it's provided like, some supernatural sign. I mean, there, there yeah. are
1: angels appearing in the sky, so which is I um, mean. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, or cloths. So swaddling cloths are for the, the lambs so that they don't get damaged when they're born, mm-hmm. right? They keep them in, actually keep them in these things. So where where, are these cloths? They well, let, would be let's look up the word.
0: I see what you're saying. Let's look up the word for the cloths. Swaddling cloths. We'll look up the Greek, since you
1: requested the <laughs> Greek. <laughs> I went there. All right, so... Greek. Where's my Greek? Wait, this is, is the there. wrong... Okay. And uh, you'll find a baby wrapped in swelling cloths. And it's actually one long word. <laughs> one long word. Uh, wrapped in swelling cloths. And it's... Greek's fun. Esparganomenon.
0: We sound really official right now well, on this know. podcast. You know. Or from Georgie. You come on. Uh, um, let's see if I can do... Okay. Can you read that word? Esparganomenon. Hey, you did better than I did. I think that that sounded right. Yeah, no, no it is. But who knows? No, it did. And that's actually a verb, and it means to wrap in swaddling clothes. There's actually a whole verb for it. Huh. See? Let's see what it means. Um, yeah, let's go there. There are a few references, and the references the in Thayer's Greek lexicon out. are not to anything Hebrew, but Euripides, Aristotle, Hippocrates, Plutarch, and others. Ooh. And according to Strong's Concordance, it's from Sparganon, uh, a strip from a derivative of the base of Spiraso, meaning to strap or wrap with strips to swathe an infant after the Oriental custom. So,
1: Oriental custom. I
0: don't know here if there is a particular reference to a particular type of swaddling clothes. But yeah. I'm eager to find some evidence for it because I mean that sounds pretty pretty interesting, doesn't it? Okay, let me see what the commentaries say. Ah, I lost my... Okay. Because it says this shall be a sign to you. Yeah. So, it's a sign that they had found him, right? But again, he's he's lying in a manger. Yep. Okay? So, it's it could be that everybody's dwelling in tents right now. If it's tabernacles, I mean, they could have just gone through until they heard a baby crying and then they looked in and there's the baby. Could have. That's what they were looking for. Um, Of course, it was exceptional that a newborn infant son or newborn infant should be found not in a cradle but in a manger. But again, that would only be exceptional if a sukkah wasn't being referred to here, if it wasn't an ordinary tent built for tabernacles, yeah. then that so it could be though that it was a sukkah built for animals. It was a it was a particular tabernacle built for the animals too, and in that case, um, the word manger would refer to a place where the animals were kept. So let's look at the word for manger. Yeah, good. and see what it says because if that if it was a place where animals were kept they would just look for a place until they found where animals were kept and if there's a baby kept with the animals that would be so manger. so the word for manger here so that one is fatne. Fatne. it's a funny sounding word and it means crib manger that's not helpful at all no, mr thayer Um, According to Strong's Concordance, it's a feeding trough, a stall, a feeding box for cattle. So, according to a couple sources here, it is particularly referring to a place where animals were kept. Feeding trough. That's kind of weird. So, interesting. Let's see if there's some good word studies Our ramblings are going to sound really funny on this.
1: Well, it, I, but hopefully, know, we, we, hopefully, all, you
0: will see that we are not just pulling this stuff out of a hat. We're right. actually trying to dig to dig into God's word and find the answers. So,
1: but it is interesting. You always think in a manger, so we always think that they're in a this or that, right? You always think that the manger is the
0: the feeding trough? the building of oh, the building,
1: in, right? But it's actually.
0: See, that's what I'm saying. Like Ken Johnson over here, he apparently takes the view that manger is a reference. This is what he said. He thinks manger is a reference to a sukkah, but he yes. doesn't really support it. He just says um, the same word used in the passage is the word. No, no, no. Um, sorry. I think I may have taken what he said a little bit out of context. When he's talking about the suka. he's making a reference to, John one fourteen. So that's a completely different oh, passage. Man. So he. Okay, so I got
1: get about everything we just said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's why it's important, folks, to read what someone says very clearly.
1: <laughs> 1.14 is uh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Amen. Okay.
0: Well, you know what, guys? What I think we're probably going to have to do is just study this, and if we discover any insights that we can corroborate with reliable sources, then we'll get back with you about it. But uh, we probably need to go ahead and wrap up our podcast for this evening. And we will continue talking about tabernacles because we need to discuss the great day, which is the eighth day, the eighth conclusion. We're going to talk about that. So
1: we'll get back with you next week.